Well, what a wonderful Wednesday night, and what a wonderful gang. Wowie. Ten Commandments is the series. I'm glad that there were Ten Commandments that we were not supposed to do. I mean, can you imagine if God had written all the things we were supposed to do? There's no way to remember all that, so he narrowed it down to ten. We couldn't quite get those, so he said, well, let's go for two. Love your God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. But tonight we're looking at what, is what we call the Old Testament, the Torah, the Hebrew writings. And number three of the commandments is do not take the Lord's name in vain. So the question for tonight is, so what does that look like? I told the band before, you know, that maybe I should just say, stand up and say, so if you cuss, just stop. You know, maybe that's it. Nobody laughed at that, but I'm just saying that was. This is, this is more, way more than about a curse word. And so we're going to talk about that this evening. But let's start with name. What's in a name? My name is Richard Bruce Foth. Uh, some names are profound, some are serious, some sound funny. How did you get yours? Different cultures do it different ways. My grandmother was Volga Deutsch. Anybody know what Volga Deutsch means? This area was settled by Volga Deutsch. These are Germans. Catherine the Great was a German. She married uh, Peter, Tsar of Russia. And they started moving, moving Germans up along the Volga River back a couple of hundred years ago, maybe as a buffer from the e for the eastern people coming. I don't know why they did it. But, but the people who settled there were German who lived in Russia, and they called them Volga Deutsch. And over time, they got persecuted, and they came to this country. And my grandmother was one of those. My name is Foth. That's my grandfather's name, my dad's name. My grandmother's name was Louisa May Schiebelhut. Now, if that's your name, I love you. We're probably connected. But there's hardly a week goes by that I don't thank God for Foth. I'm just saying, I could have been Richard Bruce Schiebelhut. I'm just, you know. And, but, but what's in a name? Sometimes it's a place, a town or a city or a river. Sometimes it's a function, like in Western Europe, if, if you were a miller, your name was Miller. If you were a, a carpenter in England, you were called carpenter. In Germany, they would call that Zimmermann, the room builder, or a farmer. From my roots, a given name and a surname is what I have. My surname, the sire name is Foth, my given name is Richard. Spanish names, but have family names like the mother's name is at the end in Spanish names. In Asian names, a lot of times, the family name comes first. But the way we talk about names is deep in us. We talk about what it means to dishonor the family name. We talk about dragging somebody's name through the mud. My last name is the clan to which I belong. I'm part of the Foth clan. My first name is my unique place in that clan. I'm not John Foth, I'm not Harry Foth, I'm Richard Foth. But the function is revealed by a name. In the Old Testament you have words like Ebenezer, that's a name, and it means up to this point God has helped us. Names are changed in the Bible to denote changes in roles. So Abram becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul, 
the Jews in exile in Babylon and were in the exile series, you know. Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, they changed his name when they changed the culture. So what's God's name? When you, uh, when you look at it, in Exodus, the third chapter, and this won't be on the screen, I'm just going to read this to you. In Exodus, the third chapter, you have this guy who was raised in the courts of Pharaoh. He's a Jewish boy. The law had gone out from the Pharaoh to kill all the males, all newborns, and some people had civil disobedience, if you will. And, um, and they put this little boy, Moses, in a, in a reed raft in the river, and it happened to be that Pharaoh's daughter found him, and you know the story, many of you do, that he was raised in the courts of Pharaoh, he was in leadership, he was trained, and then when he was 40, there was somebody trying to kill somebody, and he killed somebody, and he had to run for it. So the next 40 years, he's in the desert, and one morning he goes out, and he sees a bush that's on fire. Now, I understand that bushes can sometimes can spontaneously combust in the desert. I think that's true. It can happen. But this is a bush that was not burned up, it says. It was not consumed. And he got closer, and it was a talking bush, right? And he goes over, and the voice says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And then he, Moses starts having this conversation with God because God wants him to go back to Egypt and bring his people out. This is the conversation. This is the centerpiece of the conversation. Then Moses said to God, because he's stalling. Moses, is, you know, his picture's in every post office in Egypt. He didn't want to go back there. Then Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Because there are lots of gods in that part of the world, historically and to this day. What is his name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this to the people of Israel. Say, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you have that. And then as the third commandment, as he, lead, as, as he is leading the people out, he says this, Exodus 27. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So to take something in vain is to misuse it at the very outset. It's, it literally means to empty it of meaning or to make it worthless, to, to defame it or to take something that is holy and treat it with disrespect. Face it, your name is your reputation. Somebody says, you know so-and-so? And if the person has done something wonderful, they say, oh, yeah. If they've fallen, if they've done something that's, that they end up in prison or they do other kinds of things, their name, their reputation hangs on their name. God is spoken about in the Old Testament of being jealous of his name. Now, when I wake up in the morning and say, God, I love you and I'm really thankful you're jealous. You know, I don't usually go there. But there is this in the Old Testament, you hear this talk about there's a jealousy that God has, and the jealousy is good. Can jealousy be? Yeah, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous that you have a life 
that is worth living. You're jealous for your family or for your children or for grandchildren that they have a chance to hear clearly the good news about Jesus. That's a good kind of jealousy. He's jealous for his name. Now, and, it, and it has particular meaning in a polytheistic culture. That is, a polytheistic culture has many gods. Many go I grew up as a little boy in India. And everything was a god in India. Everything. And, and in, in the culture they were in that day, polytheism or many gods, each god having its own name, was common. God is making a distinction here. He said there's one God, and he has many names, you know. He has, he's the God who provides. He's the God who is with you. He is the God who goes before you. He is the God who heals you. You, you know, so this is one God with many names in, in that regard, many uh, names that are added on to I am in the best sense. But if you were to go to a, a service in a synagogue or in the temple, you would sing the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Lord our God is one. There is one God that's at the heart of things. And that name, I am, is is different than the other gods. The other gods that surrounded the Jewish people had to be appeased. You had to do this, you had to do that to keep from being obliterated. Here is a God who comes and says, you don't need to appease me. I will come and give you myself. And that's the second part that comes when we see Jesus showing up. So in a polytheistic culture of many gods, he says there's one God and his name is Yahweh. Now, in, in, the, in the scholarly way of looking at this, there are four letters for God, Y-H-W-H, -H, Yahweh. Now, when the Germans translated it, they, we Germans don't do well with Ys, and so we made it J, so it became Jehovah, because there were no vowels in the Hebrew language, and so we just said, well, Jehovah. But Yahweh, Jehovah, it means the same thing. And in that, here is the God who creates a unique juxtaposition of intimacy and holiness. When we say Father, it's a unique relationship to this God. This is a relational God. This is not the God who just makes pronouncements and if you don't get it, he takes you out. This is the God, it's, it's like, if you'll allow me this, this is like sex in marriage. It is intimate, it is exclusive. To be fully enjoyed and to be revered, to be respected. It's unique, it's set apart. He says, my name is both intimate and holy. That's a combination that you don't find other places. That's a combination that you don't find in any other religious system, if you will. And I don't mean to suggest that what we're talking about here is religious systems. We're talking about a relationship with this God who says, don't take my name in vain. What does it mean to take his name in vain. Well, we already heard it in the text, and essentially it means not to misuse it. Don't use it in the wrong way. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways we do that is to attribute something to him that doesn't belong. 
doesn't belong. Attribute something to him that doesn't belong. The idea of swearing in the name of God or saying, by, in, you know, in God's name I do this, all the other religions around them would say stuff like that. Or Sarah says this or whatever. The God of the sun. Or, and he says, don't do that with my name. I am more than that. So you attribute something to God that is not true. If you misuse it that way, if somebody says, well, I know you're God. You know, your God hates people. That's attributing something to him that is not true. That's taking his name in vain. How about this? How about adding something to God that diminishes him? Adding something. I think this is the place that I would tend to go. Okay? This is the place that Adam and Eve went, for example. There was profanity in the Garden of Eden. You say, really? I, 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 read, I read that several times. I didn't hear anybody cussing in there. I, you know, what's that about? If profaning God's name is adding to what he has said so that it makes it invalid, then that's profaning his name. Here's the text, okay? In Genesis, the third chapter, when he gives Adam and Eve the garden, he says, the whole garden is yours. You can cultivate it. They were horticulturists. They were arborists, okay? They were farmers, if you will, orchardists. And he said, eat from all of the trees, cultivate them. There are going to be two trees in the middle of the garden. One is the tree of life, and one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any of the other trees, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you will die. In chapter 3, the serpent, the enemy, comes along and says to Eve, really? He didn't say that. If you eat from that tree, he'll die. And Eve, wanting to help God out, apparently, I don't know, or wanting to protect herself from something she wanted to do, said, he said we cannot eat from it or even touch it or we'll die. Well, that, how are you going to take care of it if you don't touch it? So that can't be right. And when she said that, the enemy himself recognizes an untruth, and that's his entry. That's where he comes in the door. When you add something to God that diminishes him. When you read Matthew, the 23rd chapter, Matthew, the 23rd chapter is this fascinating chapter. I just want to read you a few verses. And... Um, Jesus is taking on the religious types who aren't representing him correctly, okay? Excuse me, I just need to find my chapter here. Matthew 23, and he, he is excoriating them, okay? This is what he says. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would to enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, follows you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, this is not baby Jesus making mild. This is saying that you have taken something that God has offered, and you've added to it. You made all of these laws, 
and all of these things, and it's burdening the people and breaking them down, and they're not getting access to the God who wants them to have access to him. My question is, why do we do that? Why do we add stuff or rules or laws? The next part I'm going to say is not Bible, okay? This part is just foth. This is a foth theory. I think we add rules and laws because that's the part we can control. And if, if I can make you abide by my rules, then I can control you. And God is saying, none of that. Do not add to what I say. And that's our tendency in order to make it better or to make it more understandable or to do this or that or the other. So the, the question is, why? Why do we misrepresent? When, when we do this, when we add to him, when we diminish him, when we represent, what happens is that we represent his nature in a wrong way. You know, I, I've heard it over the years many times. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go to a church. Those, those people are just hypocrites. They talk about God, but look, you know, look at that. This idea of representing God's name or his person is a powerful idea. I have a favorite question that I ask people sometimes, and it's this one. When did God become more than a word to you? When in your life did God become more than a word to you? And I ask that of the wife of a missionary. She herself was a missionary to Africa for many years. And she just looked at me. She came up in a very hard family. A lot of drugs, a lot of stuff going on. And she said, God became more than a word to me when I stopped adding damn after his name. When you add stuff to God, it doesn't make him better. It makes him less, and it doesn't represent his nature. It doesn't represent his nature. I... Um, had the privilege a few months ago of having a conversation in public with a former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. Some of you know that name. Dr. Condoleezza Rice was at an event and I'd been asked to interview her. And um, she has a memoir. And, and I just said, instead of me asking you questions, can I just take phrases from your memoir and toss them out and you give us the context. You give us the, what that means. So we said, okay. She said, okay. And so I said, uh, Italian. And she said, my mother loved Italian opera, and she wanted me to have an Italian musical name. And so at first she thought of, um, I think Andante, which means slow, but you don't want to name your daughter back in the 50s. You don't want to name her slow. And, and then she thought of Allegro. And she said, but that means fast. You don't want to name your girl fast back in the 50s. And then she said, but... There's a phrase that, that is condel chasey, which means to play with sweetness. And she con contracted it and made it condoleezza, and that's where I got my name. I said, how about this? How about um, what a friend we have in Jesus? She said, when I was three years old, I was banging away, learning the piano a little bit, and I used to go to my grandma's house and stay with her, and she was a piano teacher. And... Uh, one day I said, I want to have a real piano. I just have this little keyboard. She was just three, three and a half, something like that. And her daddy said, if you can learn to play What a Friend We Have in Jesus perfectly when you do that, 
I'll get you a piano. She said, the next day I went to my grandmother's house, so I'm told. I sat for eight hours at the piano. My grandma showed me the keys. I did not eat lunch or anything, and by the time my daddy came home from work, I could play What a Friend We Have in Jesus perfectly, and it shocked him because he was thinking he had a bit more time to get the cash, you know. <laughs> they had to go down and rent a piano. And then I said, I am a Ray. Her mother's side of the family were named Ray. She said... Um, that was our family name. And I can remember my grandparents and my parents, when I went out, when I went out with other kids, when I went out in public, they would always say this to me. Remember, Condi, you are a ray. And it made me walk taller. It made me watch my language. It made me watch my actions because it was the family name that I was representing. So... When a person swears, because we often think of that, we think of taking the Lord's name. When a person swears when they don't like something or they don't like you, they can swear in a lot of ways. They can just use gutter language. You hear it all the time, right? When I use gutter language or vulgarity, it cheapens me. But when I misuse the Lord's name, it cheapens him. And as part of his family, I would never do that to the father or the mother that I loved or the family that I loved. The heart of the matter, though, is not language in this. That's a piece of it, but it's not the heart of it. It's this idea of how do I live my life in a way that does not profane, that does not empty the Most High God? How do I live my life in a way that does not take out the, the meaning and the punch and the power of this God who comes to unlock our doors and let us out, who, as we sang tonight, he's come to ransom me by his amazing grace? How do we live, in our, lives, live our lives in a way that represents that? When you get to Jesus in the New Testament, I think he takes this idea of you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, and he turns it to the other side when, when they ask him to, to teach them to pray. And he says, this is how you pray. Our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. That's how it starts. That's the, that's the, the, the foundation for everything that follows. What does that look like to, to hallow a name? So I'm, I'm working the other side of this now. What does it look like? If you were to come with me to Washington, D.C., and come to the Lincoln Memorial, let's go at 2 in the morning. I promise you, if you go to the Lincoln Memorial at 2 in the morning, there will be people there, many of them from other countries, because for them, the Lincoln Memorial is the symbol, the symbol of freedom. Okay? And if you're looking at Abe and that huge statue sitting there, some of you have been there, on the right you have the second inaugural address that Abraham Lincoln gave, not long, but was given about three or four weeks before he was assassinated. Some say it's the finest piece of writing in the English language. On the other side, you have an address that he gave that just takes a handful of minutes when they dedicated the cemetery at Gettysburg National Battlefield. It's called the Gettysburg Address. And it was given on November 19th, 1863. And it reads like this, fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty 
and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to aid or detract. He gives us his name. This holy God gives us his name. I'm Richard Bruce Foth. When I step into Jesus, when I step into his life, this is just, again, a little Foth theology. I think I get a new name. I think I'm Jesus. I am Foth. I get this larger name that goes on forever. When you become part of his family, it goes both ways. It goes back to the people who have believed and forward to the people who will believe. There's something about that family name that is profound. He goes on in the prayer to say, you're my source, your ways and your will, the kingdom are preeminent, you provide our daily needs, you don't take us down evil roads, your kingdom, your power, your glory forever. There's something about walking with him. There's something about having his name in my life that changes how I think, how I talk, how I act. It's, it, it's the language of your life, not just the language of your mouth. And when that happens, there's a presence that comes into play when you walk into the room. I have a friend who's now with Jesus. He was, he was a professor at the University of Illinois. And he was on the National Institute of Health Advisory Board. That advises the United States government about health issues for five years at a time and all that. He read a book by... Uh, a woman by the name of Sarah Patton Boyle who got involved in the civil rights movement and, and the black community didn't, didn't want her and the white community dropped her. And when that happened, she said, I fell into the arms of Jesus. And she wrote a book called The Desegregated Heart. And he was so touched by it that when he went to Washington for a meeting, he said, I called her on the phone. She lived across the Potomac River and by chance she was there and she picked it up and she agreed to come and sit with me and my wife for a morning and we met in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. And he said, Dick, when Sarah Patton Boyle walked into the lobby, a different presence came into that hotel. What, what would be the dream of not taking the Lord's name in vain? What extrapolated would that look like? I'd like it to be said of me, Hasn't been so far, but I'd like it to be said that when he walked into the room, a different presence came into the room. In leadership circles, they talk about people all the time. He said, that person walks in and takes over the room. They're larger than life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about walking into the room in the name of God, and it brings his presence into the room in a way that takes over everybody's life. There's something about his presence that is real. It's a different presence. It has peace and joy and compassion that's woven all through it. You don't have to say words. 
your life speaks. When I went to Bethany College as president, I had a dean by the name of Dr. Charles Pace who had a PhD in communications. And one day he said, he said, you know, Dick, you should never write a business letter so it can be understood by the recipient. I said, say what? <laughs> he said, you should never write a business letter so it can be understood by the recipient. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you should always write a business letter so that it cannot possibly be misunderstood by the recipient. God says, don't misuse my name. Don't attribute things to me that aren't me. Don't add to me because when you think you're adding, you're really taking away. What you need to do is to walk in life, and I will help you by my spirit to walk in life so that I cannot possibly be misunderstood. When people meet you, I cannot possibly be misunderstood because it is so different from the culture that surrounds you. And the burden is only on me to be open to that. It's not to do that. I can't, I can't do that in my own strength. Only he can do that. And so he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my son. He has the same name as I do. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. And um, he is the I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the good shepherd. I am living water. I am living bread. I am the beginning. I am the bright and morning star. I am the end. I am the resurrection and the life. That God. So when we sing about Jesus, we're singing about the I am. Back when I was a kid growing up in church, 12 nights a week it felt like. I mean, my dad was a pastor. I went to church so much. I, you know, I could spell it 14 ways in 12 languages. I, you know, I just. And there was an old song we used to sing. See if I can get it right. It went like this. The name of Jesus is so sweet. I love its music to repeat. It makes my joyful and complete. The precious name of Jesus. Jesus, oh, how sweet the name. Jesus, every day the same. Jesus, let all saints proclaim. His worthy praise forever. And then back in the 70s, all these choruses were going around, and somebody brought one from the Caribbean that went something like this. Sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, what a wonder you are. You're brighter than the morning star. You're fairer, much fairer than the lily that grows by the wayside. Precious, more precious than gold. You're like the rose of Sharon, etc., etc. Went on. There was a guy who came to our church who was a postdoctorate in genetics at the University of Illinois. He came because he heard our little radio program we used to have. He'd grown up in church, but he wasn't with Jesus. He had a profound experience with Jesus that radically changed his life, and he wanted to take me to lunch. And when he took me to lunch, he said, I need to tell you this. When I started coming, I would sit in the back row and you would sing that, you know, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus. He said, I thought that was like the silliest song I had ever heard. It was ridiculous. And then he went on to say, but I was a profound alcoholic. 
I would have all of my experiments in my lab arranged, all the animals that I was experimenting in, and I kept a fifth of vodka underneath, and I would go through it before 9 o'clock in the morning, and I'm a big guy, so I didn't show it. I would do that two or three times a day. And he said, and then Jesus changed my life. He ransomed me. And he said, all of a sudden, that song with that name wasn't silly anymore. The silliness goes out of the name when you meet him face to face. I want to choose to live in such a way that God's nature cannot possibly be misunderstood because I bear his family name. Do not take God's name in vain. Hallow it, revere it with your life. Let your presence in any space in this town or this county, let your presence bring his presence. In that name, you will hallow his name at every turn. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. I pray that whatever I have said here that isn't of consequence, let it just go by. Let it just be forgotten in this moment. But what is true about you, what is true about your heart, let it be so um, embedded that it seeps its way by your spirit into the nooks and crannies of our spirit so that even as we go from here, days down the road, that we will understand that our joy is to bear your name and to live in such a way that no one could not possibly misunderstand your nature or your heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise for that. Amen.